I'll never forget a number of years ago, kneeling by the bed of a man named Copper John. I'll never forget it because I had never met Copper John before this moment, and I'd never been in this house where I found myself now kneeling. But just a little while earlier, I had been at the gym, and someone called me because they knew I was a pastor, and they said, Jonathan, we need you to come because this man, Copper John, is in the final moments of his life. And so being, being a pastor, I was at the gym, I, I packed my bag, I tried to wipe the sweat off of me, I knew it was a time-sensitive matter, I, I packed my bags, I got in my car, and, I, and I, I simply prayed as I drove. I prayed as I drove because I'd never been in this situation before, I'd never been with someone at the time of their death. So I asked God to give me guidance, to the Holy Spirit, to, to give me the words to say, I didn't know what to do, but I drove to the house. I got out of my car, and when I got out of my car, I grabbed a little, a little prayer book I have, a prayer book for ministers, which has different prayers for various occasions in it. And I went inside, and I saw Copper John there in a little in-home hospital bed, going in and out of pain. He wasn't able to talk. I could tell he was in extreme pain. He had been diagnosed with terminally ill cancer a while before, and um, he basically refused treatment in the last months of his life because he felt like it was time. And so there I knelt in that room, and there wasn't really words in the room that day. There wasn't much to say, and so we simply sat around his bed in silence. And then it, it just felt like the right time, and so I asked him if I could pray for him. He didn't respond. But I took his hand, and I began to pray. And then from that little prayer book, I opened it up and I read this. O oh God, all that you have given us is yours. As you first gave John to us, now we give John back to you. Receive him into the arms of your mercy. And before I could say amen, John had passed away in that moment. So we all sat there. We sat in silence and we contemplated everything that had just happened. John moving into eternity. And we stayed there and we sat there and we contemplated because that's that's really what you do in the midst of death. In those moments, all the things on our to-do list suddenly seemed very unimportant. And so we lingered there. And in the last few weeks here at Harvest Point, that's really what we've been trying to do in this sermon series, Famous Last Words. We've been trying to sit and stay with Jesus in his final moments of life. We've been trying to contemplate his final words on the cross and what they mean for us. We've been, we've been trying to just sit with him and stay and not rush away from the cross. We've been trying to discern the significance of it together. And today, we're going to look at the final words of Jesus on the cross. And during this time of the year with Palm Sunday going on and the fun of Easter and the Easter egg hunts and the celebration of the resurrection and the joy, it can be easy to just skip past the cross 
and just think about Jesus' miracles and all of the great things about his life and to just kind of rush past it and then go on to Easter and just do all the celebration and, and put on our white and, and just have a good time. But we can't rush past the cross because we can't have Easter and resurrection without Good Friday and the death of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at these famous last words from Jesus. Words recorded in the Gospel of John and words recorded by Luke. And so when we come to these final words of Jesus, Palm Sunday and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everybody waving palm branches and singing and celebrating, that seems like a distant memory now. Because a lot has changed. Public opinion about Jesus has changed. Perception has changed. People have turned on him. We've seen people yelling at him, people jeering people mocking him. But in these final moments, a lot of that's even faded. The sun has faded. And John tells us this. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And Luke, writing about these final moments as well, tells us this, that it was about noon And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And there was a centurion, and seeing what had happened, he praised God, and he said, Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who'd followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. It's finished. It's finished. That's a phrase that you've probably said at some point in your life, right? It's Friday afternoon, you're fighting traffic, getting back down here after a long week of work at a job maybe you don't really like anymore, and you say it's finished until Monday. Or if you're you're a student and you've been in testing all week and and you've been preparing for exams and all this stuff and you finish, what do you say? You say it's finished. Or you're a teacher and it hits May, it's the end of the school year, and you say it's finished. I ran a half marathon once and at the end of it I said it's finished. It's a phrase a lot of us are familiar with and so when we see these words on the lips of Jesus in these final moments, we kind of put ourselves in that situation and we hear him say, it's finished. And sometimes we hear him saying it kind of softly or or maybe mumbling a little bit. But Matthew and Mark tell us that in those final moments that Jesus ended his life with a loud cry. And so I don't think we should hear Jesus mumbling or saying it softly. Instead, I think we should hear Jesus saying, it is finished. Will Willimon, who's a bishop in the United Methodist Church, he says it this way. He says that the way we should hear Jesus say this is the, the way we might hear Michelangelo say after he put the final brush stroke on the Sistine Chapel and he looked up at it. It is finished. It's finished. It's completed. In the Greek, it's just one word. Finished. Completed. Done. Something amazing has taken place, something astounding, something miraculous, something world-changing 
is finished. It is finished. Those are some of the final words of Jesus. But what exactly was finished that day? Well, Matthew and Mark and Luke give us some clues. Because after all, there was a lot of things finished when Jesus died on the cross. But they, they point us to one thing specifically because they all say this, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then they say it was torn from top to bottom. And now you might not know what the curtain of the temple was and that would make sense because the curtain of the temple has been torn. It's gone now. But the curtain of the temple was something extremely significant in this day and age. And that's why they just reference it. They, they know that the readers, the people who are hearing this, they know what they're referring to because the curtain of the temple was in the innermost court of the temple. And I think we have a picture here. Let's go back to the picture of the, of the whole temple, the diagram. And so here, this is a little replica of the, the temple mount where the Jewish people worshipped where they, they still go and worship around the Temple Mount. The Western Wall is on one side of this today. This is a little replica. And the Temple Mount was a sprawling area. It was a sprawling area where lots of people gathered for, for lots of different reasons. And in kind of the outer courts, a lot of people gathered, all types of people, Jews, Gentiles, whoever, all around it. But then as you got closer in, you got closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. And it became more and more limiting of who could approach different areas. And so you see the kind of the tall area there. There you're approaching the inner chambers where only the priests were allowed to go. And in there, there was an altar of incense where priests would burn incense. And then in there also was the temple curtain. And behind the temple curtain was the Holy of Holies. Where in ancient times, the, the Holy Grail was there. The Ark of the Covenant, the, the, which held the Ten Commandments, surrounded by gold with angels on it, with their wings kind of bending over, making the shape of a seat. And that's what they called the mercy seat. And in the Holy of Holies, it was believed that there the presence of God resided. There was the holiest place in the entire world. And so not just anybody could go there. Only the high priest could go there. And only once a year could the high priest enter in. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the other areas and from the entire world by the curtain. So let's see that image of the curtain now. And this curtain, it's a dark image, and th this is not a photograph. This is just, you know, a digital replica. Is extremely tall. Over 60 feet, likely. It's extremely tall. It's likely made up of one piece of fabric, kind of royal colors and design with, with angels and other, other things embroidered into it. And it was that curtain that once a year the priest would lift up and the high priest would go in and it was there that the high priest would make an atoning sacrifice. The high priest would make a sacrifice of a blood, the sacrifice of a goat, a sacrifice of a bull, and he would spread their blood on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of his sins and for the forgiveness of the sins of all of the people. Year after year after year, the high priest would go back there and make that sacrifice in that holy place, which was set apart from the rest of the world. Separated by 
the curtain. And they all say that in that moment when Jesus died, when he said, it is finished, that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom being a clue that it was God who was tearing this curtain. And in that moment, God was doing visually what Jesus was speaking about verbally. God was saying, it is finished. And so one of the things we see finished is that this sacrificial system and the need for this high priest to go back again year after year after year to make a sacrifice to atone for the people's sins, it's finished. We see God revealing to us, God pointing to us that in Jesus Christ as he died upon the cross, as his blood was shed, that he was the ultimate sacrifice once and for all, for, for the forgiveness of sins, for all people, for all time. God was saying, it's finished. We don't need to continue to make these sacrifices over and over again. Forgiveness has been bought. It has been paid for. It has been taken care of by my son, Jesus Christ. And what we also see finished is that the separation, this curtain that separated the presence of God from the rest of the people that put him far off. This need for a priestly mediator to go and to make their sacrifice on our behalf. We also see that that's finished. The writer of Hebrews, he says it this way. Because Jesus is our new high priest, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, this curtain was torn and so now there's no separation between us and God because Jesus is not only the sacrifice for our sins, he's also the high priest who gives us intimate and immediate access to God whenever we want. We don't need an earthly intermediary anymore. God is telling us, it's finished. Your guilt, your shame, any separation you had from me, it's finished. It's done. It's completed. Jesus was saying, my mission is finished. My mission to reconcile God in the world, you and your creator, it's finished. The mission is complete, done. There's nothing left to do. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That he has made the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And he is the high priest on our behalf through whom we can approach God boldly and receive mercy and forgiveness and relationship. It's finished. But this good news can be hard for us to take in in our world because we feel like nothing's really ever finished, right? I don't know if your to-do list is like mine, but there's always more to do. And when we finish one list, we just go to another one. It's never really finished. That's what we tell ourselves and we say, okay, but if it is finished, well, we in our human nature feel like there's no such thing as a free lunch and so there's no such thing as free forgiveness. So we have to do something to add to the work of Jesus or complete the work of Jesus or earn the work of Jesus. There's no way it can truly be finished and that it's all been done, that it's all been paid for. And so what we do is after God has torn the curtain in two and thrown it on the ground, what we do is we take that curtain and we put it back up. We put that curtain back up and we tell God, God, I know that you've removed the curtain, but 
That just seems too good to be true. And so we put it back up and we feel like we have to tear it down ourselves. We feel like we have to, to earn this or we have to do something to deserve it. And so what we do is we think, okay, I got to do some good things in life. I got to do some good deeds. I got to tear this myself. I have to work hard. I have to be a good person and I can tear it a little bit more, a little bit more over time. And then maybe one day when I've done enough good things, then I will have torn the curtain and then I will have earned the right to be in God's presence. I heard a Luke Bryan song the other day on the radio. I don't know if you've heard this one. Where he says, I believe the streets of gold are worth the work. When I heard that on the radio, I thought that's completely wrong. Because the streets of gold, spending eternity with God, isn't dependent on our work. It's not dependent on our worth. It's dependent on Jesus' work. And Jesus is worth. And so when God sees us trying to put that curtain up and tear it down ourselves, he says, stop. It's finished. It's done. It's completed. But still, we try to put it up again and again. And some of us, what we do is we try and put up that curtain. And we say, God, this curtain can come down once I get my life together. But before I get my life together, you don't want to be in my presence. And so we say, you know what, I'm going to put this curtain up. And once I get my addiction under control, once I get all this secret stuff I'm doing that other people don't know about, once I kind of get that under control, then I can be in God's presence. Or we say, you know what, I'm not the best with my family. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I need to kind of get my house in order. And then God can come into my house or I can go into God's house. But until then, I need a little, I need a little separation because, God, you don't, you don't want to be with me until all of this is put together. And God looks at us and he laughs and he says, look, it's finished. It's done. It's completed. But still, we, we try to put it up. We try to raise the curtain again. And sometimes we raise it so that we can hide behind it. Because we feel like there's no way that if God looks at us and if God really sees our hearts and knows exactly who we are and what we do and what we think and what we wish upon people, we think there's no way if God sees our hearts that he would love us. That he would give us this free gift of salvation and of forgiveness and of relationship. We think there's no way and so we hide. But God says it's finished and he removes that curtain. And he says, I see your heart. I know everything about you and I love you the same. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. It's finished. I've shown my love to you by sending my one and only son into this world to give his life for you so that you could be forgiven, so that we could have a relationship. It's finished. You see, it's ultimately not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did. And it's been finished. And one way to think about this finished work of Christ is to think about it in terms of a gift. It's one of the images that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians. He says, the finished work of Christ is a gift 
that God wants to give us. It's a gift of grace that He wants us to receive for ourselves. A few years ago, I went to my mailbox every day like I do when I get home. I'm that person. I go to my mailbox, I check the mail, I open it up. And this day in my mailbox was a white envelope with no markings on it. I thought, that's kind of strange. I thought this could be something bad, but it could be something good. So curiosity made me open it up. And when I opened it up, there was $100 cash in the envelope with no note. Which is kind of sketchy, right? I mean, it's like, am I part of like some weird drug interaction here? Or like, what's going on here? I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. I kind of like looked around to see if somebody was filming me, but I, I went in my house, I counted the money, and I was like, this is so odd, but so awesome. And I, I thought like, I mean, did I do anything to deserve this money? No. Did I do anything to earn this money? No. It was simply a gift that someone wanted me to have, and so they put it in my mailbox. Now, later, I called Emily, and I said, Emily, you won't believe this. I got $100 cash in my mailbox. And she, being smarter than I was, she said, well, maybe that was from a number of weeks ago when somebody smashed your mailbox with a baseball bat. Maybe they were repaying you. I was like, well, maybe, but my landlord already replaced the mailbox, and it's all taken care of. So I don't know. I'm just going to take this as a gift, right? There's no note. There's no sign on this money. It was simply a gift someone put in my mailbox for me. And what did they want me to do with it? They wanted me to simply receive it. And that's the way it is with the gift of God's grace, the gift of Jesus' finished work for you. Have you done anything to deserve it? No. Have you or can you do anything to earn it? No. It's simply a gift that God holds out for you and for me. My guess is that now that we're in April, you probably don't have any wrapped Christmas gifts still sitting in your living room, right? Because when somebody gives a gift, you don't just leave it sitting there. What they want you to do is to open it and to receive it. And Jesus, he stands there He stands there right now in heaven with his arms open and he says, look, it's finished. It's done. This gift of grace is for you and all he wants you to do is to take his nail-scarred hands and to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to do that. And when you do that, things in your life will begin to change. And I know they'll begin to change because they've changed in my life. When I've taken hold of that work of Jesus for myself, the lives of many people in this room have been changed, and the life of Copper John, the man I was telling you about earlier, his life was changed. See, Copper John was an interesting guy. He was an interesting guy because for most of his adult life, he was homeless. 
He lived on the streets of Atlanta in Little Five Points, if you're familiar with that area. And he was somewhat of a local celebrity around those parts. Copper John Ford was his name. And he was called Copper John because he made jewelry out of copper and little stones. I have a, I have a picture here of him doing some of his artwork. And for many years of his life, while he lived on the streets, he, he battled an addiction. But later in his life, he got clean. And he took hold of the hand of Jesus. And he understood that work that Jesus had done for him, and his life began to change. And that as his life changed, his, his situation of homelessness didn't exactly change. He, he still lived on the streets. But he had new joy, new peace, new purpose, and he continued to make the jewelry and sell it. But as he sold it, he recognized that God had given him this gift of creating beautiful things. And so he sold them with joy. And as he did, he shared Jesus with everybody he encountered. And there's another guy named Pete. And Pete has a bike shop in Little Five Points. And so Pete would see Copper John hanging out around his store selling jewelry, just sitting down on the sidewalk. And one day Pete was going through a tough time in life. And Copper John gave Pete a Bible and he said, Pete, your answers are in here. And Copper John pointed Pete to Jesus. And as Pete took hold of the hand of Jesus, things changed in Pete's life. And they had a great friendship. And so years later, when Copper John was terminally ill with cancer, Pete said, you can come and spend your final weeks in my house. And so it was there in Pete's house that I was kneeling on the floor, praying with Copper John in those final moments. It was there that I witnessed Copper John move from death and pain in this world to eternity in the next. It was there that Copper John was received into the arms of Jesus, and Jesus said to him, It's finished, John. Your pain and your suffering is over. Welcome home. And every time I think of Copper John and his story, I think about the power of God to transform lives. I think about the gift of God's grace that he wants each of us to have. And I think about how Jesus wants to say to you, Welcome. Welcome, it's finished. It's finished. I've done everything for you. Welcome to eternity. He wants to say that to you. But until that day comes, He also wants us to take hold of His hand and to say day after day after day, Father, into Your hands, I commit my spirit. I hope you'll do that today. Amen.